0: hello and welcome to the early education show this is episode 80. this week we're bringing you another series of presentations from the realizing the potential conference the theme this week is how do i lead and improve excellence in early learning our sincere thanks to the victorian department of education and training for allowing us to share their presentations from that conference just a reminder as well that in three weeks time lisa leanne and i will all be in darwin at child australia's little people big dreams conference as presenters We'd love to see you there. If you're attending, uh, feel free to come up and say hi. If you're not booked in yet, uh, but would like to go, just head to lpbdconference.com.au. All right, on with the show.
1: This podcast is one of a series of recordings made at Realising the Potential, Early Childhood Forum. Presented by the Department of Education and Training on Friday the 8th of June 2018 at the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre. Our breakout session on how do I lead and improve excellence in early learning will feature the following speakers. Professor Joss Nuttall, Director of the Teacher Education Research Concentration in the Learning Sciences Institute Australia in the Faculty of Education and Arts at Australian Catholic University. Dr. Dan Cloney. Research Fellow in Policy, Research and Practice at the Australian Council for Educational Research, Andrew Hume, Chief Executive Officer at Gowrie, Victoria, and Anthony Saman, Director at Saman & Slattery. Hello,
2: my name's Marie Howard. I am the State President of ECA in Victoria, um, and I'm going to be your facilitator for this session. I'd first like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, where we're meeting today, the people of the Kulin Nation. I'd also like to pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and the elders from other communities who may be here today. I'd like to welcome you to your first concurrent session, entitled, How Do I leave, Lead and Improve Excellence in Early Learning? Early education, um, is a t- early childhood education is a topic dear to my heart, and I'm really excited to have been asked to facilitate this session today. The quality of early childhood education and care services is a key factor in delivering benefits for all children, particularly those from a disadvantaged backgrounds. In this session today, we're going to hear from four experts in early childhood education and care. They will share their thoughts on leading and improving excellence in early learning from their own unique experience. Before we start, I'd like to reiterate what George said about social media. I'd encourage you to join the conversation and share your thoughts. Um, they're the hashtags up there. Um, you don't need, think I need to read them out. So without wasting any more time, I'd like to introduce our fabulous speakers, and I'd like to, you to give a warm welcome. I'm going to talk about each of them, so and then I'll welcome Joss up to the stage. So our first speaker will be Professor Joss Nuttall, Director of the Teacher Education Research Concentration in the Learning Services, Sciences Institute Australia, Faculty of Education and Arts at the Australian Catholic University. We have Dr Dan Cloney, Research Fellow, Policy Research and Practice from the Australian Council for Educational Research. Andrew Hume, the Chief Executive Officer of Gary Victoria, and Anthony Saman, director of Saman and Slattery. So, can I invo- invite Joyce to start off, and she will be followed by Dan, Andrew, and then Anthony, and then I'll be back at the end of the session um, to ask a few questions of the panel. Thank you. Welcome
3: our speakers, please. Joss. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary, and uh, thank you everyone for coming, choosing this breakout session. I'd like to add to Amari's comments my acknowledgement of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional owners of this land where teaching and learning's been happening for tens of thousands of years. I want to share some of the thinking behind a project that I'm working on at the moment that's funded by the Australian Research Council. The project is focused on the role of the designated educational leader Under Regulation 118. If you are one of those people, put your hand up. Oh, my people. (laughs) Welcome, you're doing really important work. I hope you find this session stimulating. This introduction of a mandatory professional leader inside each early childhood centre or service is a really profound shift for our sector. Professional development was historically something that happened outside of our field. You went on a course or you did some university study or you came along to a day like today. That's shifted. Now every service is required to have someone in-house who's responsible for leading the learning of the other adults so that they can better foster the learning of children. And this takes a bit of a head shift because, of course, we all did our teacher education, our TAFE education in early childhood learning and development. And so suddenly finding yourself responsible for leading the learning of other adults in the centre can take quite a bit of a shift in terms of your own identity and your own practices. We're working with this concept of learning rich leadership. And I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking what we mean by that. I think there's still a widespread belief, we call it cognitivism, that learning is something that happens in the head. It's in the brain. Well, it is. The brain, of course, is implicated in learning. But it's not the only thing that's implicated in learning. In this project, we're thinking about learning in terms of practice change. And in particular, of changes in professional practice. In other words, we consider that leaders have learned and that their teams have learned when practice changes. And ideally, those practice changes will lead to positive improvements in quality provision. We're not getting into, in this project, the debate about quality. We have a national consensus on quality, which is the National Quality Standard. And, of course, while any standards are open to contestation, that's our marker going into this project. When leadership practices change, how do professional practices change in ways that influence the assessment of services against the National Quality Standard. So, why focus on leadership in early childhood? And why is there this policy focus on leadership in early childhood? Not just in terms of the national law and regulations, but in terms of some very important professional development work that's being funded by the Victorian Department at the moment. There's evidence from a lot of workplaces that leaders, that effective leaders, make a huge difference. And if you've ever worked for an ineffective leader, you'll know what I'm talking about. But we actually know very little about how this connection works in early childhood services. So our hypothesis in our study has three components, First of all, we're predicting that effective leaders think about their centre or their service as a system. And I'm not talking here so much about system in the way that Sharon uh, Lynn Kagan talked about it this morning in terms of the systems of infrastructure, but taking a systemic view of the early childhood centre. Some people describe this as being up on the balcony as well as being able to be down on the dance floor. Our second hypothesis is that after decades of thinking about teacher education, thinking about uh, initial programs that try to influence the knowledge and the skills, the beliefs and the attitudes of early childhood educators, what we need to actually focus on is practice. Practice that is embodied because it's bodies that do practice. And third, I want to touch on this not so much as a hypothesis, but as something that is already evidenced uh, in the English setting, which, again, Sharon touched on this morning. And I should acknowledge that our partners in this research are um, Professor Liz Wood at the University of Sheffield, so we're able to make a comparison with the policy settings in England. And... Uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr Linda Henderson at Monash University, what we're seeing in England is that one of the dangers of a standards-driven, data-driven environment is that educators sometimes, not always, simply become more compliant because of the stress and strain of meeting mandatory standards. And when that happens, innovation tends to go out the door, as the standards come on in. And so our hypothesis is that effective leaders are thinking not just about practice change but about innovations in practice. I want to end by touching on two further concepts that are important in our study. These aren't hypotheses. These are genuine targets for our inquiry. Sustainability and appropriateness. It's easier, it's not easy to lead, but it's easier to lead in services that are already functioning well. Everything's smooth, quality's at a high level. You can't take your eye off it, but it's easier to lead in those contexts. But the reality for many ed leaders, and we have engaged with over 100 educational leaders prior to this ARC work across South Australia, Victoria and Queensland, what we're finding is that the reality for many of them is that quality is variable, that they're poorly paid, that they have limited non-contact time and they're dealing with teams that have really diverse qualifications and come from incredibly diverse cultural backgrounds. And those cultural backgrounds provide a richness. They also provide a challenge. These realities are slow to change. And I did want to pick up Sharon's point about support for educators as part of the infrastructure and the silence in policy around pay and conditions for early childhood educators and the intensification of the work of many of you who have taken on the educational leader role and yet are still paid, at the same level, and have the same non-contact entitlement. These realities are changing slowly, but in the meantime, we're trying to understand what are the leadership practices and approaches that foster quality practice in spite of these limitations, the children can't wait until everything settles down. They're with us now. How can educational leaders be working with their teams to foster quality practice? So that's the challenge that we've set for ourselves. I'd love to hear from any of you who want to know more about the work. And I'm delighted now to hand over to Dan. Thank you.
4: Alrighty. My name's Dan Cloney. I've put my contact details up here. Um, My experience to date has been that uh, we as a sector are not great at Twitter, so I always encourage people, sign up, have a conversation, make some noise. Um, I really do want to hear from people, you know, positive or negative. You know, I want to spend a bit of time today telling you about um, uh, the e for kids study. Um, I want to tell you about Uh, where we're going with that work, the work I'm doing to try and translate the the research into tools that educators can use um, to track quality uh, and to measure learning and development. Um, And and it's all centred around this idea about how do we improve um, quality? How do we use research to improve practice? Um, And I've got to say, my phone is in my pocket on silent. It's vibrated five or six times, so I'm pleased to say I've got five or six new followers, so thank you, folks. Okay, so uh, I was fortunate enough to be a, a research fellow on the Ether kids study. Um, uh, the intellectual impetus for that was the, um, the national reform in early childhood. Um, we, we did this longitudinal study over you know, the best part of, of 10 years. It was la- Australia's largest uh, study that was focused on the the relationship between the quality of everyday early childhood education and care programs and kids' learning and development. Um, the final report is available. I would strongly encourage you to to go and download it. It condenses ten years of work into um, something that is pretty accessible and, and pretty powerful i think um, and and just while I have that up there, I, I think um, uh, it 's also a good time to. Just you know, pay tribute to uh, Colette Taylor, who was the intellectual lead, uh, the person who had the, um, the courage to bring together early childhood educators, education measurement people, economists, health um, folks, um, and do a study that, you know, sometimes told us challenging things um, about the level of quality, about the impact that, that everyday programs were having uh, on children's learning and development. Um, and so that's what I want to focus on here um, is inside that study um, we said what we want to look at is you know, what are the quality of everyday programs, um, but we want to take the perspective that to us quality means um, the things that we do that are directly causal, that cause children uh, to grow in their, their learning, development, the knowledge, the skills, the understandings that they have. Um, And so we use this measure, the Classroom Assessment Scoring System, um, which is a measure of process quality, um, and the the tagline that goes along with it that I think explains its sort of approach is this idea of teaching through interactions, that it is what educators do on the ground with children um, that drive um, growth in their learning and development. Um, And there are lots of other things that we call quality that sit around that. Um, They're important. Um, but if we 're interested in knowing what is it that we do that causes learning and development, then this is what we should pay attention to. The class looks at three aspects of um, of, of interactions um, and it does this because it, it takes the theoretical perspective that um, not all practice causes all outcomes. we do specific things that foster children 's Uh, social and emotional skills, their ability to regulate their emotion, to understand what rules and um, um, things are going on in the classroom um, or in the group or in the program. Um, And there are some things, and I'm going to talk about instructional support, that's going to be the focus because I've got 10 minutes and uh, that's where I've been doing my work. Um, Instructional support gets at the kind of interactions that um, support children's oral language development, pre-academic skills, cognitive skills... And really the focus, um, and I won't go through all of this, is that the measure of instructional support is about how does the language we use support children's learning, right? And there are classic educational concepts in here around the use of feedback, um, scaffolding, introduction of concepts, the stimulation of language, self and parallel talk. There's stuff in there that I think you will agree that is what we do. And so this measure fits very well with the Australian um, uh, sector, um, with what we think of of as quality, and it has that added benefit of being, you know, something that is causing children's learning and development and something we should be very interested in. My colleagues say never put complex uh, graphs and statistical output in slides. I can't help myself, I'm sorry. Um, um, But this is kind of the state state of the state of the play in Australia that came out of that E4Kids study. And, and uh, what I want you to take out of this um, is two messages. One is that this measure of instructional support that we think supports children's early oral language, um, their cognitive skills, um, it's low in most settings in Australia. Um, and there's an equity issue. Um, what this slide shows is it breaks down neighbourhoods that services are operating in um, by groups of SES from low to high, and hopefully I've drawn a little line to show that trajectory. The boxes represent, you know, what is average quality. It's the middle 50% of observations we made in our study. And what we see is that in the the least affluent neighbourhoods, the lowest instructional support quality is happening. Um, But across the board, there's a little salmon-coloured dotted line, um, horizontal line between two and three on the scale, um, that's the transition point from low to moderate quality on this on this measure, um, and so it's true to say that in Australia most centres, most programs are offering on the low end of, of instructional support. This is a really good reason for us to focus on this as a as a, a point of change. This is where we focus our quality improvement efforts on. And I've added one more line here. This comes out of some US research that says, you know, we'd want to see programs operating above this point where this red line is um, before we would start to see significant effects on kids' learning and development. So if we want to know that our sector is having uh, positive effects on kids' or oral language development, cognitive skills, that's where we need to get it to. So I'm going to leave the findings of the e for kids study there because I'm almost certain that when I check the, the Google stats later on, that final report's going to have had about 400 downloads. And I want to spend two minutes and four seconds telling you about, Okay, so so what next? And this is sort of the the work I'm doing now um, with some of my colleagues. um, And we're focusing on how do you take research, instruments that require a lot of training, a lot of skill, that are very costly to run in the field, um, how do you take these research tools and turn them into the kind of tools that um, everyone in the sector can use to monitor and improve their own practice? And so what I'm focusing on is, can we describe a continuum of instructional quality? What does it look like from low to high? And can we describe the points um, along that continuum with really explicit examples of behaviours so that educators, um, groups of educators, communities of practice can get together and, and collect some evidence about what they're doing. Right? And the technical term for it is virtual equating, but what they would do is they would say, look, here's some video evidence of the kinds of things I'm doing. Um, We can use that to locate ourselves on this continuum. And if you can do that, then the benefit is, of course, that you can see what are the behaviours immediately above that location? What are the things that I would set myself as a target to do if I wanted to just incrementally step along that quality continuum? I think that's important because sometimes we say, geez, quality's important, we should do quality, and maybe it's, an aspirate, it's not an aspirational target, it's something that's way off in the future that's impossible for us to really achieve. I've put up another uh, technical over-the-top slide, so I'm sorry for this. Again, the only thing I want you to take out of this is this is some, pre- some preliminary work on what the continuum looks like if we use the class measure. We don't have to use the class measure. These things, I think, are pretty universal. Um, But what I've done is I've highlighted um, a level. You know, I've I've tried to paint from low to high the continuum here. Um, And I've painted a level around classrooms that we would say are just below the average. And what I've done is I've taken the descriptions we get from the class and said, well, what do classrooms there actually look like? And the only thing I want you to take away from this is, at this level, the educator rarely provides opportunities for students to be creative or generate their own ideas and products. Doing this thing, doing concept development, is hard. And in classrooms operating around the average, around the mean, we rarely, rarely see it. Telling educators to operate at a much, much higher level to always do it um, is too much. We need to focus on incremental and continuous quality improvement. I do have another slide where I was going to talk about measuring children's learning and development, but I'm out of time. Um, So I'm just going to grab a little patch and say, um, I do think we should be getting really interested in measuring kids' executive functioning, emotional regulation, social and emotional skills, um, and their early cognitive abilities. But I won't get into that today. You can send me an email, send me a tweet if you want to talk about it. I'll be around as well. And uh, what I'm going to do is pass over to uh,
5: Andrew. So thank you very much. I'm uh, Andrew Hume from, uh, from Gary. There's also the, uh, the Gary team at Broadmeadows who we're going to spend a bit of time talking about today. I'm going to be talking a lot of, about we today because we're going to tell a story about um, some of the work that we've done at, um, uh, at a service in Broadmeadows and some of the work that we've been um, doing there um, where we were involved in a cracking um, piece of research called the Victorian Advancing Early Learning Study. DET are going to release that in the next couple of weeks. It's a mouthful, so for the rest of this 10 minutes, it's going to be referred to as VAIL. What I'm going to try to do is build on what Joss and Dan have already spoken about, and I'm going to talk about leadership in terms of the conditions that leaders can create that support practice change and better practice. So the we we includes us at Broadmeadows, obviously... The we includes University of Melbourne, who were um, leading the study, and a a special nod to our expert coach, Nicole Pillsworth, in that. And it also refers to our school partners, the Broadmeadows Valley Primary School. So a quick little story about Broadmeadows. Two, and sorry to the Broadmeadows team, I think you're going to be up there for four or five minutes, and I didn't know it was going to be this big, but there you go, you're now famous. Um, Two years ago, um, Gary went to Broadmeadows, Um, took over the operation of a long day care service, um, co-located with the school, and we went there for one primary reason, and that was to demonstrate high quality in a complex community at a reasonable price. It is a complex community in Broadmeadows. It's um, it's C for one. Um, The levels of vulnerability on AEDC, whether you look at one or two um, uh, domains are about double the... Um, state average. And of course, the community um, with some of those characteristics also has a remarkable sense of and skills of um, resilience. We've learned a tremendous amount from this um, uh, community over the last couple of years. Occupancy was about 30 or 40% when we started. To cut a long, long story short, um, we've just received our exceeding rating and is at about 90%. Being part of this VALE research was a really um, key part in that in that change. So a little bit about VALE. It's DET funded, as I said, led by University of Melbourne, um, and we are one of the participants, as are Moonee Valley City Council and Mission Australia. The well, Dan talked about E for kids. I describe VALE as the so what. Um, from E for Kids. So E for Kids showed those really fairly low levels of instructional support on average. The aim of Vale was to develop a professional learning model that had a sustained impact on educator professional practice. If it was a picture, which it is, it looks like this. So back to where Joss started, there are lots of moving parts in the system of a service that contribute to practice change. In the bullseye there is um, what the what we're trying to shift, what we're trying to improve. And just to pick up Dan's point, the measurement tool that was used for this was class. So, the pr- well, there are a number of measurement tools. The primary measurement tool was class, which is really focused on the interaction between um, educators and children. What I've got time to talk about today is just a couple of the outer, um, uh, outer rings. Maintaining threshold conditions and leadership and service management. Think about these as like um, the ecosystem that wraps around the pedagogues. Two aspects are highlighted in Vale as being particularly important, so I want to zero in onto those and I'm going to try and bring them a bit to life from a gallery perspective. One is the stability of leadership and staff and the other is buy-in from all levels of leadership. So stability of leadership and staff, intuitively it confirms what we know. If you have stability, it gives you consistency of relationships with children, families, and communities. Uh, Consistency of expectations and ways of working. It reduces the risk of losing what we call context expertise, people who know um, uh, the community. Begs the question, of course, from a leadership perspective, What can you do to contribute to that? Many things. The one I'm going to talk about um, today is at at Gary, what we call um, values based recruitment. So, values based recruitment is about choosing people to join the team where you've got a core set of aligned values. And when we're talking about values, just go go deep, Think, think really deep. Values are the stuff that you don't budge on, you don't trade, no matter what the pressure is. They're the, when you're seeing something or, or participating in something, when you tear up, when you start to get goosebumps, that's the sort of stuff we're talking about, where you really start, that's a sign you might be rubbing up against one of these deeply held values. So that's what we go looking for. One of ours at Gowrie is demonstrating the flexibility to grow and learn. So that's a value that we recruit for, demonstrating the flexibility to grow and learn. Every single role in the organisation, we're looking for that. And in interviews, we delve into people's relationship with failure. And there's not too many of us that can authentically say, I love failure. But for people who hold demonstrating the flexibility to grow and learn as a core value, I can tell you three things about them now. They will readily acknowledge their role in the failure. They will have analysed how it actually happened. And most importantly, and this is the really big distinguisher, they will have already done something different in other circumstances as a result of that learning. So bringing people together with a core-aligned set of values is... Something that's really important for us. So let's move on to the um, the buy-in at all levels of um, the organisation, having touched on that aspect of service leadership and management. So buy-in. Vale talks about um, a whole range of things. Um, I'll try try to group them together. Um, Prioritising the practice change. Think back to what Joss was talking about, the realities of running a service and everything you have to do. So you need to prioritise the practice change. For us at Broadmeadows, that meant that the veil vale work was the single practice priority for an entire year. That meant Broadmeadows didn't participate in a whole range of initiatives that we had going across the organization. Vale also tells us that it's about committing to the necessary resources needed to make the change. That's time and that's dollars. And I feel like a lot of the time we try to get away from that, but, you know, there's an old saying that hope is not a strategy. And trying to make this level of change without investing the right time and dollars um, doesn't work and and, and Vale's a fantastic example of illustrating uh, how much and how intentionally you you need to do it. And you need to hard bake it. If we're talking about sustainability, you need to lock it into rosters with clear expectation about how that time's used. Um, last one on um, buy in to talk about is, and this is a tricky one to discuss when we're talking all this stuff about measurement, but you've got to buy into the, the learning and improvement. Not just the absolute result, and particularly not the start point. And that was really clearly understood right across our organisation that it's not about where we start, our job's to improve. And when you think about it and you think about our context, that's actually only fair. So, remember, we were growing from, like, 30% occupancy up to about 90%. So you've got a new team and a growing team that have got content expertise but limited context expertise. Um, you've got engr- enrollments that are growing. So the amount of time and effort that is understandably and completely appropriately put into some of the earlier domains in the, in the class model that Dan was talking about, around the um, social and emotional support, completely makes sense. Right. The results. Or as Nicole reminds me constantly, the class results. Because there's a whole number of different um, results and ways of measuring that are included in the report. Um, The classroom. So this is, put all this together. So what can you achieve? Stable team with aligned values, organisational buy-in and a really disciplined um, uh, measuring system. So The um, class samples for individuals and they're amalgamated at room level were taken on a quarterly basis. On a quarterly basis, the team came together with the researchers to share and understand the information. Here's the the actual results. This is under threes. Under threes has um, uh, two of the class domains, um, not three. The stuff on the right. So this is the this is the quarterly result. The stuff on the right. This is under threes. This is the hard stuff. This is the uh, instructional support. So started at about average. In the course of a year, I mean, it's it's a fantastic result, and it's knocking on the door of rolling into that really high-performing instructional support in a year. In that context, um, these are the result, These are the results for the over threes with all three domains there. Improvement across all three domains, really high um, starting point on the first two, and a similar trajectory on the instructional support. Out of time. But this is the really uh, most important thing. The measures are great, and they're an indicator of success. The magic, the more important piece is what the team did with the information, what they did with the data. So this wasn't about, here's your results. Teams took the data pulled it apart across all of those domains that Dan um, told you about, all those those different factors, took that and intentionally said, right, what are we going to do differently and what do we want to be moving next time back to this really solid incremental approach that Dan's talking about around practice change. So when we talk about measurement and when you have a look at Vale, don't forget that piece. It's not just about measuring, it's what you do with it. Right, definitely out of time. I'm going to hand over to Anthony, and as he's walking up, the only thing I will just say, Vales comes out in the next couple of weeks. It sits really beautifully with EFA kids and every toddler talking. I go and have a look at it. It's some really rich information. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Hi, everyone. How are you?
6: That's one person who responded. Come on. Always has, always be, always will be Aboriginal land. To Elders and Aboriginal people in this room, thank you for allowing me to be a visitor. I promise I will encounter everyone with tenderness and kindness. My paper today is called Spaces of Relationships Encounter, Dialogue and Collegiality. The idea that relational leadership should have an impact on quality practice is what I want to explore in my time today. Quality is and has often been constructed through process and structural components like ratios, group sizes and the quality and quantity of interactions. And these should remain the cornerstone of our debates around quality. However, in this presentation, I want to bring further attention to the idea that leadership operates as a relational space, a space of encounter, a space of dialogue, a space of collegiality and a space of solidarity. These are all critical to the experience of leading and being led. Because without attention given to leadership as a relational experience, it omits one of the most important aspects of quality, that is the experience of educators. And to reiterate the obvious, perhaps that has already been restated and will continue to be restated throughout the day. Quality matters to young children, but also to everybody who encounters early childhood. We must continue to interrogate and analyse. So for the experience of the other can only ever be understood and articulated through a personal story, a story of the actor. And in this instance, it's the story of the child, the child who is at the centre of everything that we do. However, the challenge remains, how do we bring to the service the story of the protagonist, the young child, the person who's often quiet, silent in this story of quality? Because if we reduce the voice of the child we might actually get to a place where we say, well, the research doesn't matter because we haven't heard the voice of the child. But I don't think it does. I think it does matter that we continue to tell the story even though much of the research to date has silenced the child. I want to explore with you today the idea that Peter Moss aptly names the space of encounter. And it's this space of encounter I want to talk to you about today, the space of encounter of those who are bleeding and those who are being led this means all of us in this room. I understand that this demarcation is sometimes quite clumsy but today I don't want to talk about management, I want to talk about leadership because management structures don't always talk about encounter where leadership does. Management can often be transactional. So to speak of leadership today is to speak of relationship, a relationship which makes the labour of early childhood people one which is emotionally pleasurable. We flourish in environments that give us pleasure, that gratify our mind and our soul as early childhood teachers. These are visceral environments, environments that linger in our heart and soul after we leave our workplaces. See, the work of the leader, I'm going to argue, is the work of a placemaker. The placemaker is the person who understands what is important to people, what is important to educators as they journey towards what we know as quality. We can get from point A to point B as we work towards quality. But what I'm interested in is what happens between point A and point B for the people who are doing the hard work. Examining what it's like for those who work tirelessly towards the ambitious goals of quality that the research so strongly speaks of. See, the impact of leadership should never be measured about what happens on site when the leader is there, but rather what's happening in your centres today while you're not there. That is the test of everyone's leadership. See, the encounter between the individuals delivering education is the mark that's left behind after we leave that space. It is the way in which our actions, the way in which our words, including the unspoken, has had on the other. And I don't want to be reductive when I talk about these ideas around quality. These are merely just suggestions that I'm going to offer to you all this this morning. Do with them what you will, but I hope they have an impact on quality. So I'm going to raise four points with you today. They include every moment matters, articulation matters when it comes to quality, reflexivity matters, and the nexus matters. So I'll start with the first one. That is, every moment matters. Leader DNA, that which is defined as the fundamental and distinctive characteristics of someone, especially with regard to the unchangeable, is the mark we all leave on each other. It is the encounter between those being led and those who are leading, And that's the problem. That is the fundamental problem. We might choose to lead people towards quality. However, they may not want to be led or they may choose not to follow. As leaders in early childhood, we must come to appreciate that everything we do, everything we say, everything we touch, the things we choose not to do when it comes to quality is our leader DNA. We must come to appreciate that to have influence is to make everything matter make every encounter matter between leaders and followers. Great leadership can leave individuals or groups excited to take on a challenge and to tackle it head-on, to rise to the occasion, to move beyond their wildest ambitions to the journey of quality. Conversely, leadership can leave individuals deflated when beset by a challenge in trying to achieve quality, to lack one's pride in themselves and to reduce everything to a transition, a timetable of events within our classrooms. For if the leaders desire deeply to create change, then they have to collaborate with everyone who they work to. This includes their leadership presence. That is, are you seen or unseen in your place? Your influence. Do you make a difference or are you indifferent towards people? And your leadership values, those which your actions suggest to others, matters to you. Leadership is an everyday moment. It's an everyday act. It happens between people. And the astute leader understands that your DNA is contagious and that you must act in particular ways. Articulation matters. To speak of leadership that makes a difference is to speak of the quality of leaders and what they understand of quality Understanding the challenging terrain of trying to define leadership is never an option to opt out of the discussion and debate about what leadership is. It is to sit alongside people you work with and grapple with the question, what is quality? I often wonder what happens when a leader cannot speak of quality, when they are unable to articulate to others like their colleagues about what matters to them, when they demonstrate an inability to remain abreast of what the research says matters. The impactful leader is one who sees the power in relational dialogue, one who doesn't just give ideas to people, one who doesn't just give practices to people, but one who invests in cultivating ideas along people, one who delivers hope to the group, one who understands what matters to them, their colleagues, families and children. I see great leadership practices across this country, but in my 20 years at Saman and Slattery, I've seen things that aren't so great. And I often wonder, why does that happen? And the difference I can see in some situations is those who can articulate what makes a difference and those who cannot. They lead through innovation. They attempt to resist imitation, but they always work towards innovation. They understand the context in which they work in. The nexus matters. To speak of quality, but not to enact it, is window dressing. It matters little to children what you say in your staff meetings. It matters little to children the language you use in your philosophy statement. It matters little to children um, the articulated goals in your quality improvement plan. It is the nexus between theory and practice that actually makes a difference. It is resisting, um, it is uh, realising that the words we use have to come into practice. Without impact, our words are merely marketing to children and families. The relational leader understands that we have to bring our words into life. Now, this is very hard sometimes because we have to understand the context in which we work in. The nexus is hard because quality is hard to understand. But the relational leader understands that to make a difference, they have to have important encounters with their staff. They have to support pedagogical transformation. They have to bring about a culture of accountability, but a culture of transformation. As they lure families and children to what is a site of hope. Reflexivity matters, and this is my last point. To be reflective and reflexive is to turn the mirror on yourself. It is to do what Nicholas Rose calls make your narrative stutter. The relational need leader sees the project of leadership as being always under construction. And the ultimate aim is to improve yourself, not to improve others, because it is easier to point to others than to point to yourself. The reflexive leader always asks hard questions about themselves. That is, how might I shift who I am to deliver better outcomes for others? Be warned, we all have an ego. To see oneself as superior of others is to speak only of ego. To see oneself as better than another center speaks only of ego. See, the ego traps us as we say things like, you know, we're doing good work here, but the others down the road are not. It can present itself in more astute ways, like what we do here, others should also do the same. The ego, the central downfall of many a good leader. The humble leader sees the most powerful leadership style as being one which is about leadership presence, one that concerns oneself in the things that really matter, things that actually are lived alongside the people we work with. The relational leader always asks thoughtful questions, questions that allow us to work on shaky grounds when it comes to delivering quality. So in summary, I want to go back to my question. How do I lead and improve excellence in early learning? Well, the best way is to sum it up in this. Be humble. Be present with people. Concern yourself with things that really matter and see yourself living leadership alongside others. In summary, for a leader without followers is just a person who's chosen to take a walk in the park by themselves. Thank you very much. Thank you to all our speakers.
2: So, can we just give them another round of applause as we welcome them back to the stage? So, can you guys come up, Dan? We do have some microphones and I think we have time for some questions from the floor. Otherwise, I have some questions that I had prepared earlier. Um, So we might start with that unless there's some people with a burning question. I'll ask you the first question, Dan.
4: That's great.
2: (laughs) Give Anthony a break from his (laughs) speech. Dan, you talked a little bit about how we can measure quality and I think there is a question around, a broader question, about should we be measuring quality in um, children's learning and development. So what are your views around that?
4: Uh, yeah, no, I, I think that's a good question. I think it was um, brought up in the, the plenary this morning was, as well. Yeah. And that there is a, a tension around, um, you know, should we be doing this kind of measurement? And, and I think a lot of it comes from um, the old way of doing measurement, you know, ages and stages, setting benchmarks, saying a four-year-old should be able to do this kind of thing. I think the measurement we should be doing is is instead focused on growth, saying, OK, if we're going to um, be a serious, um, impactful, well-respected um, sector, um, then we should be able to demonstrate that um, we're continually improving in quality. Um, and when we do that, that kids... Young children um, are getting a real benefit in a a range of developmental um, domains that we think are important. Um, That's how we're going to drag in serious investment, serious respect, lift our esteem. um, And, um, you know, I I think it's a a reasonable thing to expect to say that, you know, if, if kids come in and spend a year in our programs or two years or three years or four years or five years... Um, that we have some idea about the, the learning progression they should um, go on um, and we should be able to say, yeah, we, we contributed to that. And if we can't, um, then it's very hard for us to say, you know, we're this very important sector um, that we, you know, know that we are. Okay, thank you.
2: Um, Joss emphasised the importance of practice change. Can you give us some examples, Joss, of leadership practices that you are exploring in your project?
3: Um, Thanks, Mary. There there are a couple of um, examples I can briefly describe, more principles rather than specific practices. Um, The first one relates to a response I often get when I start working with centres when I say, what is it that you're trying to achieve here in your professional learning? And I often get the answer, teamwork people want to emphasise and develop relationships with each other, with children, with families, but particularly with each other, because there's an assumption that if you get the relationships right amongst the team, then other things will follow. And so I often respond by saying, that's great, that's good that you have good relationships with your colleagues, but what are they for? And that's often quite a confronting question, because... It takes so much work to get the relationships right you don 't have time to think about what you 're getting the relationships right for. Um, and so thinking about focusing on practice, and I think Andrew's given a really nice illustration of that at Broad Meadows, the way that the team were able to focus on practices and how they wanted to enhance the quality of their practices. I'm betting that one of the consequences of that was really enhanced feelings of teamwork and relationships with each other, because working together to achieve a common goal and succeeding in that is an intensely positive experience in terms of relationships. The other thing that we try to emphasise in our work with leaders, and I stress that the project's at the beginning, and it's uh, this is hypothetical, but, but it is based on a lot of pilot work. And that is the tendency to focus on people rather than practices as if somehow they, they are separate things. People and practices develop together. The development of practice isn't separate from the person and their relationship with themselves, their relationships with each other. And so in our work, we ask uh, educational leaders to take their eye off intensely individual and personalised approaches like coaching, mentoring. We know that those things work, but we also know that they're very difficult to sustain in a sector that has a lot of turnover. And so if we focus on practices, then the work of the leader is about creating cultures Creating cultures that can endure after the leader leaves or where there is staff turnover because it's a focus on practice for quality rather than a focus on us all getting along with each other. Mm
5: -hmm. Yes. Can I just add add, add something to that? Um, Because there's heaps of information in this VAIL study. Uh, and One of the things in the VAIL study, um, it talks very strongly about the approach that you are taking to um, practice change. It might be around the particular intervention that that you're choosing. The importance of everyone within the service um, being trained on that, so that there is a common language and a common approach um, is emphasised really strongly in those results that... As to what you're talking about. I would about. call the common object. Exactly. That's what I would call the common object.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so while you've got the floor, Andrew, I'll ask you a question.
5: Oh, we all sat in the right order then, Murray.
2: Yeah. I was interested, um, a lot of organisations, everyone has values and, you know, we often join not-for-profits because we like their values. Um, it's often hard to live the values or instil them in your practice or in your... Um, staff mentality, etc. cetera. So um, I was interested in the value that you said about being flexible. Can you just repeat that one again for me?
5: Demonstrating the flexibility to grow and learn? Yeah.
2: So I think the audience might be interested to know what the others are. Where, where could they find out? On your website? or?
5: <laughs> okay. Good question. Um, I guess because v- values are sort of for your organisation, um, mm-hmm. the response that your question sort of brings for me is, it's not about um, choosing a value and instilling it, it's about finding out what your values are. Because if you think about values like we are, that they are so deep that you don't budge on them, you can't instill one of those. Um, So the first job is actually to go and find out um, what your values are. Now, people make professions out of this sort of um, stuff, but if you want a, a start point, you know, there are no life hacks, but if you want a, a start point, a quick and dirty way of starting to think about this, um, ask yourself the question, why don't people fit in around here? A practical way to get into that question is to go, all right, no one leaves an organisation because they're deliriously happy. So let's think about the last three people that left here, your organisation, your service, and go looking for themes there. Um and that's often a better way to start the conversation than "What is it that we stand for?" Because when you start from the "What is it that we stand for?" rather than a "Where was there a disconnect?" you'll be drawn towards um, uh, uh, values that are that are completely okay. Um, you know, integrity, um, uh, uh, integrity, respect, um, honesty, um, things like that. But, and Nothing wrong with those, but we're sort of when we're talking about values, we're taking them as a given, you know, because the opposite of them is, I don't know, um, lie, cheat, defame. So take, take them as a, um, as a given. So you're looking for something else, so you've got to find a different way to, to go and find it. But prompting, why don't people work out around here is not a bad start. Thank you.
2: Um, and, Anthony, I do have a question for you. I don't want to forget that. Yeah, um, so... The question we've got for you is how might we navigate the different pedagogical approaches in services?
6: Yeah. I think there's always an implicit assumption that the person you work with has travelled your journey, has heard what you've heard, has read what you've read, has watched that inspiring TED Talk, and I think we need to move beyond that. You know, like, I don't think anyone goes to work and goes, today my goal is to really piss off four people. (laughs) Like... It's just not. It's not how, It's not how. well, I've never worked with those ones. You know, like, my experience is people have really good intent and there are tensions in the pedagogical practices, but we make an assumption on the surface level of that's not okay and that is. And most people work from a truth statement. That is, what they're doing is good for children and that may not align with the person that you're working with. And as we say with children, you've got to look behind it. You've got to go beyond what's apparent. What we tend to do is shut down and become instructional, that we must be doing this, you should be doing this, and then we throw the evidence at them. I mean, that's a quick way to end up in a staff room by yourself is when you start to lecture people. And so my approach would be is you sit there with a person and you begin to understand where they're coming from and actually why you've taken your position. So what makes you think that a colouring in book will kill a child's creativity? Where, where have you come to? Because maybe they haven't heard the academic at a four-year degree who says there are more creative ways. That person may have had a really good intent of sharing joy from their childhood with that child. So to me, the key is to have a conversation. Don't judge, don't tell, but actually be really democratic because people only change for people that they think like them. You don't change for a monster because then you leave and you say, I'm out of here. So that would be my response is be patient and engage in a really lovely dialogue with someone.
2: Thank you. Can you thank our panel for their discussion today, everybody? Thanks.
0: You have been listening to The Early Education Show, hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs and Liam McNicholas and produced by Liam McNicholas. Find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there, it would be great if you could hit the Support the Show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.